Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Tell me who we are going to learn about today, Karen. Today we learn about Hercules Mulligan. He was a spy, and this is his story. Now, many of us think that we know about Hercules Mulligan from the musical Hamilton, but that depiction of him, although it is very fascinating, is not completely historically accurate. So, we're going to learn a little bit about the true man today. But also, if you learn about Hercules Mulligan, you must also learn about his servant, Cato, and his brother, Hugh. But let's start at the beginning. Hercules Mulligan was born in Ireland in 1740 to Hugh and Sarah Mulligan. His birth was during hard economic times, and Ireland was dealing with a severe drought and a lot of political unrest. Also, at that time, the Irish people were victims of penal laws that restricted many of their rights. Now, the purpose of these Irish penal laws was really to disenfranchise the Catholic people of Ireland. They weren't aimed at a particular race or ethnic group, just Catholics. And the idea was to entice all the colonized Irish into conversion to Protestantism. Mm -hmm. So a Catholic could avoid this oppression by converting, by defining the haves and have-nots, the politically powerful and the oppressed, on the basis of religion alone, these statutes had a profound effect, not only on the 18th century, but on the subsequent history of Ireland up to the present day. And some of these laws, I mean, they, they were very oppressive. No Catholic could vote or be elected to office. Catholics couldn't own land. You couldn't intermarry between Catholics and Protestants. Catholic churches had to be made of wood, not stone. They couldn't have a steeple or a cross. The Catholics couldn't establish schools. And this is just a sampling of things. This is right. not the whole thing. And this also fell onto many, many Protestant groups, too, if they weren't, depending on which Protestant group you were. Or how sympathetic that they were to Catholics. I mean, really, this right. was exclusion based on ideology, which is always a slippery slope to be on. Exactly. So it, they were pretty. They were pretty harsh, and obviously, they've been done away with. But that was that was the world that that Hercules grew up in, right? Right. Well, although the Mulligans were not Catholics, the family did see their friends. Is deeply affected, and they were increasingly concerned about the overall infringement on human rights. So, in order to seek out more sustainable opportunities, the Mulligan family immigrated to New York City six years later. Mulligan's father, Hugh, first set up a very successful wig business in America, and he used those funds to open up another very successful and well-known venture this was an accounting business in New York, and the family began to rise, both economically and socially. Now, the family's social status allowed young Hercules to attend King's College. Which we now know today as Columbia. 
Wright. His older brother, Hugh, became a junior partner at Court Wright and Kruger, which was a prominent trading company based in New York that operated throughout the colonies and the Caribbean. It was through Hugh that Hercules met a young Alexander Hamilton, who worked for Court Wright and Kruger on St. Croix. After graduating from King's College, Hercules worked in his father's accounting business as a clerk, but he found that this really wasn't his thing. His past experience helping his dad in the wig shop that the family owned when they first came to America, that was actually the memory that he enjoyed the most. So he built his career back in that direction, eventually opening up his own custom tailoring and haberdashery business that catered to wealthy clients that included British Crown Force officers that were stationed in the city. It was customary at that time to hang a wooden sign over the door of your shop with a picture that depicted your craft, and over Mulligan's door, the sign displayed a spool of golden thread and a pair of scissors. Ads in the newspapers tell us he used super fine cloth of the most fashionable colors, gold and silver lace, gold and silver spangled buttons and loops, and gold epaulets for the gentlemen of the army and the militia. So he kind of tailored his business. You get what I'm saying there, Taylor? He's a tailor. Uh, yeah. He tailored, Do we yeah. have to do this? <laughs> he tailored his business to the military, to the British military. He employed several tailors, and their fine craftsmanship combined with his outgoing personality, wit, and storytelling made Mulligan's Clothing Emporium a huge hit with the officers. When Mulligan married Elizabeth Sanders, who was niece of Admiral Sanders of the British Navy, this made him even more of a confidant to the patrons that enjoyed coming into his store. He kept fancy wine, stout whiskey, and refreshments there for customers, and every time they came in, he engaged them in witty, long-winded banter. One of the locals described the shop as being a regular hangout for gentlemen, fops, bucks, and dandies. Do you know what a fop is, Karen? I did not until I did the research for this episode. A fop is a man who is devoted to or vain about his appearance or dress. Oh, you're a fop then. Well, I would say I was a dandy, a man who gives exaggerated (laughs) attention to personal appearance. Maybe you're a fop and a dandy. I could, yeah, I, I don't think I give much attention to my personal appearance, but <laughs> I'm the well, anti-dandy. Despite his jovial relationship with the British soldiers, Mulligan actually harbored a deep contempt for their ideology. The stories his parents passed on to him and his brother of what they and their friends had experienced in Ireland under British rule sparked his patriot loyalty but Mulligan's experiences with mercantilism cemented it. Yeah, mercantilism, it began around 1650. The British pursued this policy in international trade. It's not an economic system. It's more laws and policies. It created a trade system where Americans would provide raw goods to Britain, like cotton, textiles, whatever. Britain would use the raw goods to produce manufactured goods that would be sold in the European markets and then back to the colonies. They had done something very similar to Ireland, and it basically crushed the Irish economy. So this was a way to keep the colonies over here under control. 
Right. Well, Hercules Mulligan was so against it that by the 1760s, he was actually very, very involved in secret armed militia companies, including the New York Committee of Correspondence and Observation and the Sons of Liberty. Yeah, and the Sons of Liberty, they were they play a big part in the in the revolution. They, they do. Mm -hmm. They were a group of political dissidents that formed in the North American colonies during the early days of the American Revolution in Boston. Now they were formed to protest the passage of the Stamp Act of seventeen sixty five. That was a tax that required printed materials in the colonies like newspapers, legal documents, to be published on paper produced in London and embossed with the revenue stamp. Now, the colonists hated this stamp act and felt that being taxed without their consent was a violation of their rights as British citizens. So when the Sons of Liberty first formed in the summer of 1765, the group was originally known as Loyal Nine, and it consisted of nine Boston shopkeepers and artisans. And when the group officially expanded and adopted the name the Sons of Liberty, is not really known because they were so secretive they left almost no paper trail. But we do know that Mulligan was an active leader of the Sons of Liberty, along with Alexander McDougall, John Lamb, and Isaac Sears. They led countless protests against the crown from 1765 to 1776. Popular and eloquent, he was nominated for a seat in the Radical Patriot colonial government in 1775, it was during this decade of political action that Hercules met a young Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton actually lived with the Mulligan family for over a year while he was attending King's College. And there's no doubt that Mulligan's patriotic fervor helped Hamilton develop his own to the point where he also joined the Sons of Liberty. And one of the th things that we saw about these guys, Mulligan was kind of the old man in the group at 32 when we're talking about hamilton and all these guys they were 18 19 20 21 years old lafayette when he came over here was i, I think 18 years old so remember how young these guys were it's amazing well at this time mulligan was also acting as a freelance spy he had been doing that for a while while he was chatting up the british soldiers with all his whiskey and refreshments and fawning all over them when they were in the shop, he was gathering information. And he had his own little network going with his wife, his brother Hugh, a friend, Jaime Solomon, a Polish-born Jew who spoke a number of languages, including German. And Solomon had access to vital British military intelligence in his role as an interpreter for the British and their Hessian soldiers of fortune. Another vital member of the homegrown Mulligan spy network was Cato, Mulligan's African-American servant. Some resources list Cato as a slave and others as a free man working for Mulligan. We're really not sure which ones are the most accurate, but it is clear that the two had immense respect for one another, and they worked in tandem to achieve patriot objectives to commit important acts of sabotage. 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 Before becoming an official member of the Culper Spiring, Mulligan did things like using client conversations as an opportunity to collect intelligence for General Washington. Also, as Mulligan received orders for soldiers' uniforms, he could tell by the type of cloth whether they were headed north or south and how many troops were moving there. 
Hercules' brother Hugh, with his shipping accounting work at Courtright and Kruger, helped Mulligan learn information about the types of supplies that the British ordered. Whatever important information was obtained, Mulligan would write it in a note and would sew the note in the hem of a new shirt or other clothing item packed nicely into a box. That box would be sent off with Cato as a special delivery and would be sent to Colonel Alexander Hamilton or other important officers. From one of these messages, Washington was able to figure out that General William Howe was moving the army to attack Philadelphia, and this allowed Washington to get his own forces in place in preparation for the battle. Hugh Mulligan also proved to be quite an effective asset. Because Hugh worked on the waterfront as a shipper for the British Army, he shipped supplies such as food, clothing, ammo, and even horses across the Atlantic. This gave him the knowledge of when and where the British needed supplies. It also gave him the power to delay or cut off supplies to British troops before attacks. Hugh would relay the info to Herc, and they would work together to sabotage... Sabotage! Sabotage shipments. There are at least two times that we know of that Hercules Mulligan and his network saved the life of George Washington. The first happened one night when a British officer showed up very late and very amped up, asking for a watch and a new coat. When Mulligan asked him why he needed it so quickly and at such a late hour, the officer replied that he was going on a mission because the Brits knew where Washington was and they were going to capture him. Oh, he was cocky about it, too. He boasted, before another day, we shall have the rebel general in our hands. Mulligan quickly informed Washington, and it saved his life. The second time Mulligan saved Washington, Washington had wanted to travel to Rhode Island through the Connecticut shoreline. Sir Henry Clinton was aware of Washington's plans and ordered 300 troops onto transport boats to capture him. Hugh Mulligan was responsible for loading the boats, and he quickly alerted his brother of the plan. Hercules then informed Washington, who quickly adjusted his plans, preserving his own life and likely those of several others as well. Along with his own intelligence gathering, espionage and sabotage. 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 Mulligan was also recruited into the Culper spy ring, run by Colonel Benjamin Talmadge. It was likely that Robert Townsend, who was known as Culper Jr., a successful merchant, is the one who brought Hercules in, but no one ever referred to Mulligan by name. But they did describe him to their handler as a faithful friend and one of the first characters in the city. The Culper Ring played a really, really important role in the war. And they were put together and managed by Talmadge for the Continental Army during the Revolution. It was operated in British-controlled New York City. Now, the ring was named for the operational names of two of its members, Abraham Woodhull, codenamed Samuel Culper, and Robert Townsend, codenamed Culper Jr. They were really original on those names. Right. I was just about to say that. That's, that's original. Yeah. But it comprised several other agents, including Caleb Brewster, Austin Rowe, Anna Strong, Hercules Mulligan, and Townsend's paramour, known today only by her code name 355. Yes, I actually posted an article about Agent 355 on our spy Facebook page the other day. It's pretty interesting stuff. 
Well, Woodhull was very skittish, and he was constantly worried about being caught for good cause because they would hang you. Right. And he he was so terrified of being seen with Mulligan, who he thought was just too flamboyant, that on one trip he became bedridden in fear. <laughs> so, You know what spy was not bedridden with fear, Chuck? Nathan Hale. Nathan Hale, yes. <laughs> and what did you call Nathan Hale when we were doing this? The worst spy ever. He really was. He really Bless was. Bless his heart, man. He was brave. Like, I, I personally think he'd just gone through a breakup when he volunteered because I think he just didn't care or something because he was really the worst spy ever. Like, you really, really have to, you, you have to look into Nathan Hale. And yeah. I mean, we've it, turned him into a hero, but really he, he wasn't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what what do you say? I only regret I have one life. To, if if this guy had thirty lives, he would have lost all of them being a spy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, but they did something really, really interesting here. Instead of following the regular convention of sending people into British territory on single trip missions, which they learned not to do through Nathan Hale, right. <laughs> yes. Instead of doing it that way. Right. Talmadge organized his network of agents to operate behind and just beyond enemy lines from their homes in New York City, on Long Island, and in Connecticut. From there, they reported on British activity. A single trip mission had resulted in the capture and execution of Talmadge Yale classmate. Nathan Hale. <laughs> yeah. Whereas none of Talmadge's intelligence agents were ever discovered by the British. Well, throughout all of his official sabotage, 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 Hercules still continued his work with the Sons of Liberty. In fact, after the Declaration of Independence was read on the New York City Commons on July 9th, 1776, Mulligan led a crowd down the Broadway, which is, you know, now known as Broadway, to the Bowling Green. In the center of the green stood a huge gleaming statue of King George III on a horse. Witnesses say it was Mulligan who threw the rope around the statue's neck and used it to pull it down. The crowd used the material and also removed all the crown ornaments that topped the fence around the statue, and they made 40,000 musket balls for the Continental Army. The group triumphantly declared that they would gladly return the musket balls to the king. Yeah, well, yeah, because the inside of the statue was made of lead. Everything else was right, right, gilded. Right. In the fall of 1776, General William Howe conquered Manhattan Island for the crown. It stayed under British control for just over seven years. Now, during that time, it was under military rule and used as the American base for all of the British military operations. Right. Well, fearing his history with the Sons of Liberty, Mulligan put his wife and young son in a carriage, packed up their belongings, and tried to leave the city one night. But he was stopped at the northern border, right outside of town, around where City Hall stands today. And he was stopped by William Cunningham, the provost marshal, or what we would call a sheriff now. Unfortunately for Mulligan, Cunningham absolutely despised him. There was kind of a good reason. A year before, Mulligan and the Sons of Liberty dragged Cunningham around the commons, forced him to his knees, and tried to make him damn the king. 
Cunningham refused, and instead he praised the king, and the Liberty Boys stripped him, and they left him naked in the dirt. So that would now, create a grudge. That would definitely that would, that create would. hard a little feelings. bit of yeah, yeah. But now Cunningham was back with the British occupation, and he was the new sheriff in town, and he had the power to seek revenge. So. He ordered Mulligan detained in the provost's jail, and his family was returned to their home on Queen Street. Cunningham was suspicious, but he simply didn't have any evidence, so eventually Mulligan was released. He headed home to Queen Street and back to his tailor shop. Cunningham then tried to get to Hercules through Cato. Remember, this is Hercules Mulligan's servant or, or slave, we're really not sure, but they were very, very close. Cunningham had Mulligan watched, and he noticed that Cato was often missing from the shop. Once, after Cato successfully crossed the Hudson to send a message to Hamilton, he was arrested by Cunningham's men and was brought to the provost prison for interrogation. Despite Cato being thrown in jail and having to go through the gambit of cruel 18th century forms of interrogation, he never once implicated Mulligan. So, he was finally released. Cunningham was furious, and he wasn't finished with Mulligan. So, Herc found himself in the provost's jail two more times. Cunningham had Hercules arrested and charged with spying. When it was time for Mulligan's hearing, all the officers present to sit in judgment were the very men who had hung out drinking and just shooting the breeze in his shop. So, all it took was a few good jokes and stories, and he was a free man again. But it was much more serious when he was arrested in 1780 by the spy hunter Benedict Arnold. Arnold, narrowly escaping capture at West Point after committing treason, made his way to New York City. He donned a red uniform, became a general in the king's army, and declared himself to be a spy hunter. Do you do that? Do you just declare yourself as, just, I am now a spy hunter? I think you can do that. Yeah, he did. Huh. And he probably caught Nathan Hale. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I just, what, what would happen if you just go outside, you just, like, look at everyone, and you're like, I am now a spy hunter. I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> I declare myself a spy hunter. I'm now a spy hunter. He knew Talmadge had been operating a spy ring, but he didn't know who the members were. But after a while, he zeroed in on Hercules Mulligan, probably because his name was Hercules. You would notice the guy whose name was Hercules. Yes, it's hard, and he was very flamboyant. Right. You know, he wasn't wasn't a wilting flower. No, he was not. And you have to remember, Benedict Arnold was very high up. He knew about these spy rings. Right. And Mulligan had been involved. I mean, the Sons of Liberty had done a lot of things. There had been some skirmishes, like the first violent skirmish on Golden Hill, I think it was, or something like that. He was involved in several different things. They were not known for being a a calm, nonviolent group of people. Right. (laughs) So, well, Mulligan was able to get himself through another trial, and the British officers hated Arnold, and they sided with the good-natured Mulligan, so it was very much a kind of a popularity contest. But three trips to the provost's jail t- proved too many, and customers started leaving his shop. His business floundered. He closed his shop, and he went to work for his brother, Hugh. And one of the reasons we should point out that the British, although Benedict Arnold was a very high-ranking guy, many, many, many of the British officers just hated him because he got so much money. 
right. when he came over there. You know, they were right. kind of these career guys, and they, he was like a mer- they considered him a mercenary that you right. just couldn't trust. Exactly. And he was a traitor. Mm-hmm. Even though he was on their side now, he was still a traitor. So it was when it came down to Mulligan's word against Arnold's, Mulligan came out ahead. Right. Mulligan was the guy they felt like they knew. I mean, right. that's really what, what matters. Well, at the end of the war, the British left the city and the Patriots returned. And on November 25th, 1783, George Washington led the victorious Continental Army in a march down Broadway, where the American flag was flown over the city for the very first time. Kind of gave me chills reading that. I mean, we wrote it, but for some reason, I didn't really visualize it till just now. Was seeing the American flag flown over the city for the first time. That that had to be amazing. But this was not necessarily good news for Hercules because being a spy, most of his work was, well, you know, secret. <laughs> so most of the Patriots didn't actually know unless they were involved in the spy network. They didn't know. They just saw him hanging out with the British. They didn't know that he was such a loyal Patriot. Right. And the loyalists were somewhat protected when the British were there. Right. But now the British were gone and a lot of people looked at Mulligan as a as a loyalist. Right. The Patriot community still thought him to be a loyalist or at least very friendly to the loyalists. And this put the Mulligan family in danger. But Alexander Hamilton contacted Washington and they made sure that Herc was taken care of. The next morning, the commander arrived at Hercules Mulligan's home to have breakfast with him. It was a public thanks for his service, and it also showed the returning patriots that Mulligan had not become a loyalist and was serving Washington during that time. Mulligan was able to reopen his tailor shop and get back to business, and business was booming. After Washington's presidential inauguration in 1789, he went back to Mulligan's clothing emporium, where he hired Mulligan as the official presidential tailor. Mulligan became wildly popular again. He eventually bought a large home off the Bowery Lane, which is the Lower East Side today, where he retired comfortably. There's not a lot of information about Mulligan's activities during this time in his life, except that Hercules Mulligan became a founding father of the New York Manumission Society, an early American organization founded to promote the abolition of slavery. Yeah, now this society, the New York Manumission <laughs> Society, as you said, was founded in 1785 under the full name. <laughs> this is such a name, man. The New York Society for Promoting the Manumission of Slaves and protecting such of them and have been <laughs> or may be liberated. Say that five times fast. <laughs> well, try to make a sign for the shop or for the headquarters or put it on a business card. So they they narrowed it down to the New York Manumission Society. Right. The New York Society for Promoting the Manumission of Slaves and Protecting Such of Them as Have Been or May Be Liberated. <laughs> right. And now they the first they had a meeting at the second meet by the second meeting the group had grown to thirty one members including Alexander Hamilton. Wow, Hamilton okay. was an interesting guy when it came to slavery. We read yeah. about that. He was mm-hmm. very much against it until his own political, financial, or personal interests ran counter to being against it. Right. So, but the society was interesting too because it was founded to address slavery just in the state of New York. 
while all the other anti-slavery societies directed their attention to slavery as a national issue. Wait, do you know why one of the reasons it was specified to New York? I was reading about this today. Did Do, do you know why? Tell me. You know the shipping company, the, the Kruger Shipping Company? Yeah. That he worked for? Well, they had actually, they had done a couple of slave ships. And Kruger had seen just how horrible people were treated. I mean, it was one thing to kind of know it in cognitively, but then to see it was on a different level. And they thought if they could affect change on a local level in New York where the harbor was, and they could keep the shipping companies from from basically accepting shipments. Shipments of slaves. Right. If they could, if they could stop that that it would trickle down and have a bigger effect. So instead, they were concentrating all their efforts into getting the companies to no longer accept shipments of people. That was really why they were focusing there on New York. Well, John Jay, he brought prominent political leaders into the society, and he worked closely with Aaron Burr, Hmm. who was later head of the Democratic Republicans in New York. Now, the society started a petition against slavery, which was signed by almost all of the politically prominent men in New York of all parties and led to a bill for gradual emancipation. Burr, in addition to supporting the bill, tacked on an amendment for the immediate abolition, which was voted down. Now, Jay drafted a second law to abolish slavery in New York. That draft failed, as did a second attempt in 1785. But later in 1785, all state legislators, except one, voted for some form of gradual emancipation. What they could not agree on were what civil rights would be given to the slaves once they were freed. And the majority of the society members freed their slaves. That's why you hear very little about Cato after that. Right. It brings us exactly to Hercules Mulligan's faithful friend Cato. There's very little information about Cato prior to his dealings with the Culper Ring and very little details after. Here's what we do know. This is what we've discovered. Cato was a black patriot. We know that Cato was particularly instrumental in sabotage. 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 When it came to house troop movements specifically. So there were a lot of missions he was involved in that directly affected General Howe. We know that Cato was particularly close to both Hamilton and Washington. We know that Hercules Mulligan was deeply involved with an abolition movement where most members freed their slaves. In fact, he was one of the founders of it. We also know there was a black patriot thought to be a free man, possibly a freed slave by the name of Cato Howe, who fought valiantly at Bunker Hill Valley Forge, and Monmouth, among others. We know the town of Plymouth gave Cato Howe 94 acres of land near the Kingston-Carver border, known as Parting Ways. So it wasn't really typical for a Black patriot to get 94 acres of land just because. So was Cato Howe the same man as Cato the spy? Well, we don't know for sure because their histories are both so fragmented, and Cato was a very common name for slaves at the time. But if you look at the timing, like Cato's age, he was a teenager at the time he worked for Hercules Mulligan, an older teenager, and then Cato Howe is listed as his in his early 20s. So it's very, I mean, ages, timing, relationships, and the locations 
all make the notion plausible. Right, and the last name Howe, because right. Howe was with the it British, been was ca- always showing it, up. It would have kind of been a, a joke, almost. Right. right. In a way of right. kind of a secret way of letting Hamilton or Washington know he was around, Cato was around, because he had always been involved in those missions involving Howe. So it was just kind of a, an ironic thing, and, and I suspect they may be the same people, um, but or they may be the same person, but we, we can't find out for sure. And and what's odd about Hercules Mulligan as opposed to Hamilton and so many of the others is there's no real correspondence that you can find from him. Right. Well, that's because everybody lived close to him. I, I was reading about that today. It's kind of funny. Most of the correspondence that we have is because people were far away from each other. But the people in the spying, most of them lived very close to one another. So there was no need for written correspondence because they were able to meet and talk with one another. So that's the difference. Makes sense. Kind of interesting. Well, Hercules Mulligan kept his shop open until he retired in 1820, and he died five years later at the age of 84. So that's how long he kept the the shop open. He was like 79. (laughs) That's just that's crazy. He's buried with his family in Trinity Churchyard at Broadway and Wall Street. Hercules Mulligan was a business owner, a brother, a fighter, a mentor, a friend, and he was a spy. If you are enjoying the show and would like to discuss the spies or gain a little spy intel, join us at the Spy Stories podcast group on Facebook. You can support the show by following us at Spy Stories on Twitter and Instagram. And help us get the word out by sharing the show, be that retweets or shares on Facebook or iTunes reviews. No matter how difficult the task that lay ahead seemed to be, Hercules Mulligan never stopped working for the liberty he believed in. Like Harriet the Spy reminds us, life is hard, but a good spy gets in there and fights. And until next week, keep fighting. Thank <laughs> you.